Vishwastha Rosh Hashiva, and it's good to be back here again. Um, in the, we, we go through, every year we do a few topics and lectures on various different uh, stories and uh, angles of, of the Holocaust. We've covered quite a bit the last few years, but uh, I feel like this one is going to be different um, because of the context of what we find ourselves now. What we saw a couple of weeks ago, in all of us in Holocaust education are very used to saying a mantra, you know, this is not comparable to the Holocaust, because all day, every day, throughout our lives, everyone's always saying, yeah, this is like the Nazis, this is like the Holocaust, this is like that, this is like the victims, this is like the perpetrators, and we're always very, very uptight about it. No, 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 you can't compare anything to the Holocaust. Well, unfortunately, two weeks ago we stopped saying that, and we started saying for the first time, this is like the Holocaust, this pogrom, this massacre that took place two weeks ago here in the state of Israel uh, by Hamas in the south is very, very, very similar, both in the way civilians were targeted, the sadistic tortures that the perpetrators did to the victims, and uh, I don't encourage anyone to, you know, look into all the graphic details um, and watch them. But on a certain level, and again, it's not good to be obsessed with the graphics and to watch so many videos. On a certain level, it's actually important to know a little bit of what those details are. Because we're also witnessing Holocaust denial in real time. We're seeing how, uh, I think last time I was here I spoke about Holocaust denial and it's like, we have to try to explain what Holocaust is. We don't have to explain it anymore. We're seeing it happen in real time after the perpetrators took the trouble to video it themselves. I, I almost felt bad for the perpetrators. They went through so much trouble to video it, and here no one's even believing them that they did it, right? So it's, 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 it's like uh, ironic in a way. So the 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 uh, the I, I feel like what what we're going through right now and what we're studying right now a Holocaust era style pogrom uh, the sadism of the Holocaust the perpetrators is like the Holocaust the number of Jews killed in one day has never been seen since the Holocaust in any war in any Soviet era persecution all the questions that people have been asking me in a couple of weeks. Nothing comes comes close to this, and and um, and like I said, denial as well. Um, it just gives us a sense of 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 understanding of putting things in context, and therefore the topic I chose for today is to try to I don't know if like comparison is the best word or contextualize maybe to uh, take do a deep dive on a specific program that took place during the Holocaust and point out similarities and try to understand what took place at that program. Um, and for a change, I'm going to focus more on the perpetrators and bystanders. Very often, and maybe I'll discuss it a little more in depth as we go along, um, but very often, uh, especially in Israel, especially Jews, we, when we go in Holocaust education, uh, and our focus has been primarily on the victim. It's the philosophy of religious Jews, it's the philosophy of Yad Vashem, it's the philosophy of the State of Israel, the Ministry of Education. It's pretty much across the boards in the Jewish people that the focus of Holocaust education is the story of the victims from their perspective. 
And the last few weeks I've been doing a lot of soul searching and I'm thinking that maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we did not uh, give enough attention to explain the perpetrators and explain how these crimes take place, how um, and, and, what, and what the role of bystanders is. Um, and, and, uh, and maybe we put a little bit too much of an emphasis on the victims. Obviously, you know, we like to put the primary focus on it because we're Jews and we're descendants of those victims and we're the family of those victims. But perhaps we were a bit negligent in discussing the perpetrators and the bystanders as well. So I'm going to try to focus on that uh, here. Um, if I have time, I would like to, after we do a deep dive into this, the Slabatka Kovna programs in, in June 1941 in Lithuania, if we still have time at the end, and I'm not guaranteeing that we will, if we don't, then I'll obviously save it for next time, um, that I would maybe zoom out after we zoomed in and discuss in a very abstract and uh, um, more of what the scientific community as a whole has to say about perpetrator research that's been done since the Holocaust. Psychologists and historians, if we have time, that would be nice to touch on that as well. So I want to go to the what's called the, the Slabatka program or the Kovna program of late June 1941. And the reason it has two different names is because Slabatka is a suburb of Kovna. So is the focus on the programs that took place in, this, that Slabat, in that suburb of Kavna, of Slabatka, or is it on those four or five days of programs which took place everywhere across the city? But I'm going to talk about all of it. Um, and the, the, first, some background. We're in um, 1941, June 1941. What, what takes place before June 1941 in Lithuania? So Lithuania is an independent country before World War II. It's one of the Baltic states, has a substantial Jewish population, and this is going to be important to the story, is that from the Jews' perspective, they got along wonderfully with their Lithuanian neighbors before the war. Um, so they thought. Um, there was anti-Semitism, no, one's, no one would deny that, but there was anti-Semitism everywhere, they didn't seem to preclude good relationships with their local neighbors and business and all kinds of other uh, uh, things. Actually, it seemed to be even better relative to other countries in the region, such as Poland or Romania or Germany. All those three countries are nearby, and Lithuania actually seemed to be better relatively the relationships between Jews and non-Jews in, in Lithuania. Jews had equal rights, they were Lithuanian citizens, there were Jews who served in the parliament, they were in all strata of society. In the beginning of the war, uh, the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop Pact divides, uh, the secret clause of the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop Pact divides Poland uh, between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany invades Poland on September 1st, it starts World War II. September 17th, the Red Army invades eastern Poland and it becomes Soviet-occupied eastern Poland. They take a piece of Soviet-occupied eastern Poland, the Vilna region, and they give it as a gift to Lithuania. Um, Stalin, Red Army, Soviet Union, they don't usually do gifts like that. There's one little tiny catch that really is insignificant. 
All Lithuania had to do was to agree that 20,000 Red Army troops should be stationed in Lithuania. So, all right. They got the Vilna region back, though. And Lithuania is still neutral and independent. So imagine Europe from October 1939 to June 1940. It's a period of, uh, I don't know, eight or nine months, whatever it is. You have um, the Soviet Union... Nazi Germany, World War II is raging, and there's some neutral countries in Europe. Let's say Switzerland is a neutral country. So one of the other neutral countries of Europe at this time is Lithuania. They're independent, they're neutral, they are not involved in World War II. So it's this safe island, safe haven, and many Polish refugees actually fled to Lithuania at this time. In June 1940, as was Kind of expected at some point, the Soviet Union gives an ultimatum to Lithuania that if they don't come up with a friendlier government towards the Soviet Union by tomorrow, June 14th, they were given the ultimatum, it had to be by the next day, um, then we're going to invade Lithuania. Okay, so the Lithuanian government dissolved itself and had a communist government put in place, which was obviously more friendly to the Soviet Union. Soviet tanks come in the next day because the, the new Lithuanian government wanted more uh, Soviet presence in the country. And this is a Soviet takeover of Lithuania. It wasn't just Lithuania, it was all three of the Baltic states, Latvia and Estonia as well. And lo and behold, within less than two months, by August 3rd, 1940, Lithuania is officially incorporated into the Soviet Union, so it ceases to exist as an independent country. It's incorporated into the Soviet Union. Why is all this this geopolitical stuff important? Because by the next summer, the Nazis would invade the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union includes Lithuania. So their first border there. The first place they're invading is Lithuania, but it's Lithuanian occupied by the Soviet Union. That's the the root of the Wehrmacht, of the German army. The other reason it's important is because the Lithuanians were not too happy about the Soviets occupying their country. They didn't have much of a choice, but they weren't happy. And because of propaganda, anti-Semitism, and a little bit of a reality, because you can imagine the Jews were a little happier about the Soviets coming at this point than the Nazis. They were already hearing about what's going on in Nazi-occupied Poland. So those three things, propaganda, classic anti-Semitism, and a little bit of reality on the ground, combined together to make Lithuanians believe that Jews supported the communist and Soviet takeover of Lithuania against Lithuanian nationalism and Lithuanian national pride. And this would have very brutal repercussions when the Nazis would invade as well. So, from August, June or August 1940, till the next summer, June 1941, um, there is Soviet-occupied Lithuania, Sovietization of the country, communism and all that, um, which is another story. What happens is, on June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, probably the most significant date of World War II, the Nazi Germany, the Wehrmacht, invades 
the Soviet Union, creating the largest and greatest front of World War II, the Eastern Front, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Within two days, by June 24th, Kovna, which had served for 20 years as the capital of Lithuania when Vilna was in Poland during that time, so it was one of the most important cities in Lithuania with a very large and significant Jewish population, historically a very Jewish city, especially its prominent suburb of Slabotka, which had a predominantly Jewish population and was the home to the famous Slabotki Yeshiva, place of great Torah scholars. Kovno was a place of great Torah scholars, of Jewish culture, of writers, intellectuals, Zionism, Yiddish culture, um, Yeshiva's, the Kovna Kail was the first Kail in Jewish history. It was, Kovna Slobodka was one of the most important places in the Jewish map, in the Jewish world, with over 30,000 Jews living in the Kovna Slobodka city, one of the largest in, uh, in the area. Okay? So it's a very, very important Jewish city, very prominent. And um, within two days, the, the German army had arrived there. And Lithuanian nationalists welcomed the Nazi, Nazi Germany because they have been oppressed by the Soviet occupation the past year. And the Lithuanian nationalists see the Nazis as liberators. The Nazis have come to, to get rid of the Soviets. And the Nazis also promised them, yeah, we'll give you your nationalism, your independence back. Of course, the Nazis not only never did so, they never even intended to do so, but they did make some sort of vague promise like that to Lithuanians. And what's even more important is that there's a retreat of the Red Army and an occupation of, of, of the Wehrmacht, of the German army. Is That process takes a few days, correct? Of a retreating army and a, till a new army that invaded comes in and occupies it and installs a military government to operate in the area. That, that's a process that takes a few days, possibly even longer. So there's a power vacuum. The power vacuum leads to two things. Number one, anarchy. And number two, the Lithuanian nationalists try to set up their own situation going on. Now the Soviets are gone, the Nazis haven't really established themselves yet, so we can reestablish Lithuanian sovereignty, which they attempt to do on a limited scale in the, that, that little bit of time. So, we come to the next day, right? June 24th, the German army comes in. We come to the next day, June 25th. And from June 25th to June 29th, a period of four or five days, is known as the Slabotka or Kovna massacres. And during that period of five days, 25th, 26th, 27th, 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 
pogrom that, that history has remembered as the Slabatka pogrom. It was specifically targeting the Jews in the Slabatka neighborhood. We have, I brought today a, a book with me. Um, I think it's out of print. So that's why I wanted to read actually a passage from it because it's not so accessible. Maybe it is, I don't know. It's called The Annihilation of Lithuanian Jewry by Rabbi Ephraim Ashri. Rabbi Ephraim Ashri was a rabbi in Kovna before the war. He's the only rabbi to have survived the Kovna ghetto. And he um, did, wrote, um, he later became a rabbi in New York City. He was a rabbi in the Lower East Side in the Beis Medrash HaGadol on Norfolk Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan for about 50 some odd years after the war. He, I remember when he passed away, it wasn't that long ago, he lived a very, very long life, um, and he, um, and he, uh, he's buried actually here in Har Menuchus in Yerushalayim, and he, uh, he chronicled the life in the Kovna Ghetto. In 1951, he published a book in Yiddish called Churban Lita, The Destruction of Lithuania, and about 40, 50 years later, like uh, towards the end of his life, he had it translated into English, he hired someone to translate into English, and he published it as The Annihilation of Lithuanian Jewry. He also wrote a multi-volume work called Shailas Uchuvis Mimamakim, which is a halachic responsa from the Kovna Ghetto, which is a, he reconstructed from memory, he didn't take notes in the ghetto, um, of halachic questions that had come to him in a rabbinical capacity in the ghetto about all kinds of like, you know, incredible uh, uh, questions about about life, uh, Jewish life, religious life, and questions that a rabbi never imagined he would have to deal with about saving someone if they would, someone else would be taken, and 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 and, and he he was asked a question once about if the, if there's an aksia, there's a deportation from the Kovna ghetto to the ninth fort where the Jews of Kovna were massacred, and uh, and um, there's a there's they're hiding in a bunker. A group of Jews are hiding in a bunker, and there's a baby who starts to cry. Is one permitted to stop the baby from crying by by strangling the baby um, because everyone, there's 25 people hiding in this bunker and it's endangering 25 Jewish lives? So he had to answer a question like that. Imagine. Now this lecture is not about halacha and the Holocaust, which is enough. Another one I give, maybe for another time. So we're not going to get into that. But I'm just telling you who Ephraim Ashri was. And he provides a testimony about the Slobodka pogrom. He survived the Slobodka pogrom. In other words, he was an eyewitness. He describes here that he was hiding in a, in a, we, a group of 12 rabbis and a few yeshiva students were hidden that night in the home of the dean of the Slobodka yeshiva, Ravram Grzynski. So he survived it. But he describes um, a, a little bit about it. Now it's a rather graphic description. Not only is it a rather graphic description, but it also, if you've been reading the news, it will also remind you of events that took place just two weeks ago, right a few miles from here. So I'm going to read it. I hope it's, it's, it's okay. Uh, I'm not going to overdo it, obviously. Um, that Wednesday in the evening at dusk, Lithuanian, he calls them Lithuanian Nazis. They're Lithuanian nationalists um, who, who were Nazi collaborators. And this is one of the most important points that we're going to talk about today is that the primary perpetrators of all the Slabatka Kovna massacres of these days were Lithuanians, their neighbors, people who knew them. We're going to see, he's going to describe soon that he, they even knew some of them personally, their own neighbors. 
There was very little Nazi, direct Nazi involvement. They had just arrived. There was Nazi involvement. It seems that the Nazis had instigated them. It's likely that the Nazis actually took an active part of some of them. It's still debated among historians until today whose initiative it was. Was it that the Nazis instigated the Lithuanian populace to do it, or was it totally a Lithuanian local initiative? Did the Nazis actively take part, or they only got the Lithuanians to do it themselves? Very big debate, but it's very important to understand that this was very much a Lithuanian local story, and a stain on Lithuanian history until today. So he calls them Lithuanian Nazis, accompanied, accompanied by mobs of ordinary Lithuanians, marched into the Jewish section of Slobodka with axes and saws. They began the Slobodka program on Yurborger Street, moving from house to house, from apartment to apartment, from room to room, killing every Jew they encountered, old and young alike. They chopped off heads with axes, sawed people in half, and we learned afterwards they took their time doing it in order to prolong their victim's agony. The first stop the butchers made was at the Yurburger Street home of Mordechai Yatkunsky and his wife, Dr. Stein Yatkunsky, a dentist. They chopped off their hands, feet, and organs, killing both of them as well as their son. From Yurburger Street, the Lithuanians headed onto Yatka Street and other streets. Indiscriminately, they killed every Jew they encountered, rabbis, professionals, Zionist activists, intellectuals, communists. The butchery was overwhelming. From the streets rose horrifying screams, and rising above those screams, one could make out the ancient Jewish cry of Shema Yisrael. We, the Jews who had hidden, squirmed in our hideouts. How we felt, we lucky ones who were not murdered that night, cannot be imagined. One of the most terrible instances of savage butchery was the death of the venerable rabbi of Slobodka, Rav Zalman Asovsky. May God avenge him. The Germans bound, here he says the Germans, right? You notice that he just switched to Germans. I don't know if he knew it was the Germans, he assumes it's the Germans. Other accounts say it was also Lithuanians. So again, this is part of the debate, which was Germans, which was Lithuanians, two types of perpetrators here. Rav Zalman, hand and foot to a chair, then laid his head upon an open volume of Gemara and sawed his head off. Their brutality did not end there, for afterwards they murdered his son, the young genius Rav Yudelosovsky, and then shot Rav Zalman's wife. The rabbi's five-year-old granddaughter, Esterke, was the only person at home who survived. She hid under a bed. Tragically, Esterke was subsequently killed, together with her mother, Rachel, three months later on Friday, the 26th of September, 1941. When we later entered his residence, Reb Zalman's body, minus its head, was still sitting in his rabbinic chair at his desk. His Gemara opened before him at Maseches Nida, Daf Lamed Gimel. The holy rabbi had been interrupted in the middle of his studying. We found his head in a window with a sign, this is what we'll do to all the Jews. During the night of horrors, Reb Gershon, the Gabbai of the Slobatki Yeshiva, was also killed, his throat slit. As he lay dying, he gasped to someone who discovered him, when you are liberated, relate our suffering in hell. Another dying Jew in his last throes wrote on a wall with his own blood, Yidin, Nekama, Jews, take revenge. His writing remained that wall on that wall for a long time. He goes on and on and on. I don't want to. I don't want to go too much into it. Uh, it. Lined up 26 Jews against the wall and shot them. Near the bridge leading to Covenant, they buried 34 Jews alive. The following morning, along with many of the other survivors, I went door to door. We gathered the dead and buried them in a mass grave in the Slobodka Cemetery. We decided to do this despite the danger from the still roving gangs of Lithuanians. That is an eyewitness testimony. He is the one who gathered their bodies afterwards and buried them 
together with others in the Slavatic Cemetery. He said, I walked into Rav Zalman Osevsky's home and I saw him like this. And he tells you which daf of the Gemara it was open to. So this is a real, raw eyewitness testimony of what took place there. That was the night of June 25th, 26th, the initial stage of the Slobotka program, where hundreds were killed uh, immediately that night. And over the next few days, in both Slobotka and Covenant continued, he actually describes another one, if I can again trouble you with the testimony here. Um, and I, the reason I want to do it is because, like I said, I want to focus on the perpetrators. Um, Thursday morning, June 26th, we're ready the next morning. Marched into the main shul of Kavna. So now we cross the bridge from Slabatka into the main city of Kavna. Lithuanian and German Nazis. They found Jews there in the middle of Shachris. Despite the risk, despite what had transpired the day before in Slabatka. And in the center of Kavna, 25 Jewish men had gathered to pray. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing. When the Lithuanians and Germans entered, their first command was stop praying. The most shattering part was that the Lithuanian who gave this order was Kovna's Shabbos Goy, a man who had been born among Jews and ostensibly had been a friend of Jews all his life. No one could believe that this man was capable of such perfidy. When this man entered the sacred synagogue, he showed off his Yiddish for the Germans and Lithuanians accompanying him. He spoke Yiddish very well, for he had lived among Jews all his life. First he introduced the leading townspeople. He demonstrated to the Nazis that he was no mere pogromchik, but rather a man who could be indispensable. He knew the Jews well. He knew who was who. He knew the Jewish spiritual leaders. In other words, he knew it would be who it would be practical, practical for the Germans to kill. So... He goes on to say the Lithuanians offered their assistance enthusiastically. This cooperation was so unthinkable that both Jews who were there and those who heard about it later were stunned. How could it have happened? We asked ourselves repeatedly. How could we have been so deceived? How could our neighbors, with whom we had lived side by side for hundreds of years, sink to such degrading betrayal? To this day, I cannot fathom it. I cannot comprehend how the Lithuanian non-Jews living in Jewish cities and towns such as Kovna and Slabatka could have become the murderers and accomplices to the murder of their Jewish neighbors. Although the Lithuanians clearly hated the Russians and were thrilled to be liberated from the Russian occupation by the Germans, their slaughter of the Jews was incomprehensible. This Shabbos guy wanted to show off his usefulness to the Germans. He clearly expected a great panic to break out in the synagogue. And then he says that he gave this order to stop praying. And the Jews just stood there in their talus and tefillin. They started reciting the vidui. And they start marching them out in talus and tefillin to the river where they're shot on the riverbank. And then um, the Vilia River. And he says he heard them say vidui and Shema Yisrael. And then at the end he says, After our liberation in August 1944, I returned with other survivors to the bank of the river. We dug up those graves and reinterred these martyrs in the Jewish cemetery. Some were still wrapped in the remnants of their talisim. May their mention be a blessing. Again, eyewitness testimony. So, so um, the, the, besides for the horror, now again, we see the parallels are obvious. 
to programs of today, um, and and uh, there's d- obvious differences as well, which I'm not going to get into um, uh, at this point. But um, the 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 idea that he emphasizes again, again, and again about the betrayal by their neighbors, about how these people came to be perpetrators, about how they came to be active murderers, really disturbed him. He says, to this day, I can't understand it. He said, all of us were stunned. All of us, meaning excuse me, the Lithuanian Jewish community. Uh, and this goes on for several days, but the, what, I, what I most want to talk about, one second, you know what, before I talk about it, uh, you know what, I'll talk about it now. What I most want, what I most want to discuss is a particular part of this five-day massacre which has gone down in history as one of the greatest programs of the Holocaust. How many people were killed at this, one of the greatest programs of the Holocaust? Either 57 or 60, still debated by historians. It doesn't seem to be very large, relatively, right? 57 or 60, I mean, you know how many Jews were killed in, in September by, uh, in September, in Kovna, 10,000 Jews were killed by the Nazis just a couple of months later in the Ninth Fort. And we know 800,000 Jews were gassed in Treblinka and a million in Auschwitz and 6 million in the Holocaust. Just two weeks ago, 1,400 Jews were killed in one day. So why is 57 such an important number? It's because of the nature of this part of the program. And this part of the program is called, if I pronounce this correct, correctly, the Liatukis Garage Massacre. Liatukis was just the name of this garage. This garage uh, was a maintenance, a maintenance garage for, like a mechanic, uh, for uh, agricultural uh, machines and, and tractors and, and agricultural vehicles. And this particular garage was in the center of Kovna, right on one of the main streets. So think about the main street of any major city in the world. And on that main street is a garage that, 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 uh, that, that uh, services agricultural vehicles and machines. Okay? And on June 27th, that's right in the middle of these days of programs, right? June 27, 1941, in the afternoon. So this is broad daylight. This is not at night like the Slobodka program. Slobodka program was at night, what he described, and it's Slobodka. Slobodka is an outer suburb of the city. Far away, it's like a Jewish neighborhood out at the outskirts of the city. Now we're in Kovna, in the main city, which for 20 years was the capital of Lithuania, on one of the main streets, and it's in this garage that people come to, it's a store that's open, and it's broad daylight, and it is one of the cruelest, sadistic massacres that one has ever heard in their lives. I have a testimony here of of uh, Leib Garfinkel. Leib Garfinkel was um, survived the war. He was in the Kovna ghetto, and he served on the Judenrat of the Kovna ghetto. He was a Zionist activist, and he survived the war. Um, and he moved to Israel. He he's lived lived here for many years. Died in the seventies, if I'm not mistaken. And he wrote uh, several books about the Holocaust, specifically about the Lithuanian jury in the Holocaust. And he recorded this massacre as well. The testimony is in Hebrew, but I'm going to translate it 
to the best of my ability as we move along. He describes, uh, it said it's June 27th, the afternoon, he said approximately 60 Jews were killed in the Lytukis uh, garage under the open sky, and the big, this is the biggest emphasis, we have corroborating testimony from all kinds of people who witnessed it, um, Lithuanians, Germans, and Jews, all types, and they said that there was a large crowd that gathered, because this massacre took several hours, and it's on the main street in a major city, right? And he said the crowd gathered around, a crowd of Lithuanian civilians, Lithuanian people, just people who lived in Kovna. He said it was men, women, children, elderly. He said some parents, they held their children up on their shoulders so they could see better. He said some people took chairs, who they, they were a little further back and they couldn't get, get a good view, so they got up on chairs so they could see better. And he said, and they said, and they said that everyone was cheering, cheering it on, jeering and clapping, laughing. There was a lot of uh, one of the uh, uh, German testimonies that we have from Luther von Bischofhausen, um, who was a, a officer in the 16th Army. The 16th Army headquarters were next door to it, and they officers and German soldiers witnessed this. They also did nothing. Um, it's German army, by the way. This is not uh, SS. This is, uh, you know, the German army. Um, and, uh, and, and they, they, they witnessed it. Some of the testimony comes from them. And he says that when he heard the crowd, he came close. He thought it was a sporting event. He thought it was some sort of Lithuanian sporting event because there's this whole crowd cheering in the middle of the city. But maybe it was some sort of race or something. And he looked closer and it was a massacre. And in this garage, there was all these, these male Jews that they, had, that they had gathered. It seems randomly. It doesn't seem like they picked them out as community leaders or something. And there was a, a, a whole bunch of Lithuanians who were holding them off to the side. And then one at a time, they would be brought to this, the executioner. We don't know his name. It's been debated until today who this fellow was, who was in charge of the actual killing. Took a metal bar... Some accounts say it was a wooden bar. Other accounts say it's a metal bar. doesn't really make a difference, does it? Apparently it does. You also see that in the news today. It matters how they killed them and where the heads chopped off, where they not. So apparently if it's a metal bar or a wooden bar also makes a big difference, right? And he beats them to death. Beats them. And as he's beating them, the crowd is jeering and cheering and another Jew is beaten to death. And the blood is all over. And one by one, they're beaten to death. Not only that, but, first of all, it causes a lot of mess, all this blood and everything. And, and they, there's, it's, a, it's a, you know, like I said, it services agricultural vehicles, which are these big, huge uh, things which needed to be washed down when you're, when you're a mechanic and you need, to, you need to clean up the car so you can go on, the, the, this tractor so you go underneath. So these huge, powerful hoses for water hoses that they used for the for the uh, for the for the for, for the work in this garage, so they took these hoses and they did use that to clean the area when it, when it got accumulated too much blood. But then they decided to have more fun with these hoses, and they they killed some of the Jews, these fifty seven Jews, with the hoses. In other words, they put the put the hose onto their, onto their mouth or some other entrance to the body and put the water on full force, and from the pressure they simply exploded. That's how they killed some of the Jews there. 
And every few Jews that were killed, we have here in the testimony, they, they, uh, they, 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 the, 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 some of the Lithuanians, uh, the murderers, in the middle would take out an accordion and start playing the Lithuanian national anthem. And, and the, then the crowd got really into it because then everyone would sing the national anthem together and it was very nice, everyone singing together and then they went back to, to get it, killing the next batch, beating them one by one and hosing them down as well. Um, not only do we have all these corroborating testimonies of it, we also have pictures. And you can find these pictures online. You can look at every single one of them. Uh, because these, uh, there were one or even two German uh, soldiers from the 16th Army headquarters across the street who took the trouble of, of photographing it because this was a very interesting spectacle. And they took pictures of it. And then at least one of them, his name was... Uh, Here, Gens Gunsulus. He submitted a testimony about it and his photographs in 1958 to the West German government. So it comes directly from him. Um, and uh, with permission to use the pictures for anything they needed it for. So you can actually, you can actually see it. Now the Lytukis garage massacre went down as one of the most horrifying crimes of the entire Holocaust. Why? It definitely wasn't because of the number, number of Jews killed. So numbers become insignificant. And this is also important as a comparison today because you see very often in the news they start playing this like numbers game. Look, it was only 1,400 Jews who were killed. Look how many, you know, look how many others are killed. Look how many, right? So you see that Whoever kills more is the bigger criminal. And that's not always the case, right? It's obvious why. You don't even have to go ahead and explain it, right? Um, um, and, and, and here is a perfect example of that. The Latuka's Garage Massacre was only 57 or 60 Jews, right? And, but it was the way it was done. The sadism, the cruelty, the beatings, but even more so, the perpetrators, Lithuanians, who did it on their own initiative, presumably, and the bystanders. The bystanders, the crowd around, the Lithuanians, the cheering, and the Germans from the 16th Army who were nearby, who watched it, who took pictures of it. That's what made this such, a, such an important part of the story. And that's what made it seared into the memory of Lithuanian Jewry, of, of the Holocaust, and of, of, of the entire story of, uh, of, of, uh, of, the, of the massacres during that time period. This became, this, became, uh, this became so central to the story. Now, it's hard to understand until today why the Lithuanians did what they did, specifically in the Laitukas Garage Massacre, and in general over these five days. And by the way, over the whole Holocaust in Lithuania. They were active collaborators throughout the, all the years of Nazi occupation. I mean, the final solution pretty much began in Lithuania because it was only a couple of months later that thousands of Jews started being sent to the Ninth Fort to be killed. And this is really kind of like almost the first mass murder of Jews in the entire Holocaust. 
And from there, the final solution spreads, and that is done with a lot of active Lithuanian collaboration. So how do we understand it? And till today, historians have trouble uh, explaining it. Um, and a lot of it, they say, you know, there's anti-Semitism, right? Well, anti-Semitism didn't always lead to these results throughout history, even during the Holocaust. This is quite unique. And, uh, and there was anti-Semitism everywhere, like we said. So another explanation is, well, it's because they were, they, they, they assumed, they presumed the Jews to be communists. And they were part of the Soviet occupation. Right? There was this big propaganda that was prevalent in Nazi thinking. Um, uh, Judeo-Bolsheviki, that's what they, they call Jewish Bolsheviks, the Jewish communist threat. It was prominent in all of Eastern Europe, in Poland, and Lithuania. Jews are associated with communists. So they're seen as part of this, as, as, as if the Jews were the fault or had celebrated the Soviet occupation. And therefore, now that we finally got rid of the Soviet occupation, we're kind of like going to get rid of the, the Jews who were responsible for it or who celebrated it or who welcomed it. Um, other theories are that the Nazis themselves instigated it. They told the... Um, the, the there's a... Here, I'll, there's another testimony here. I wrote it down. The... Um, Hang on a second. The the SS Einsatzgruppen, which I think we discussed here a, a, a while ago, was these SS squads that that uh, platoons really that follow the German Wehrmacht into this after following them in, in in their invasion of the Soviet Union, and they carry out the massacres of Soviet Jewry. The Holocaust in the Soviet Union is carried out by the Einsatzgruppen, these SS. Uh, groups who follow the Wehrmacht in the Soviet Union, in the Nazi-occupied Soviet Union, and they're the ones who who uh, kill the Jews. And, and in the Soviet Union, we discussed that time that it was by shooting in these mass graves outside each town, and it was divided geographically. In other words, uh, it was Einsatzgruppe A was in charge of the Baltic states, and Einsatzgruppe B was Belarus, and Einsatzgruppe C was northern Ukraine, and Einsatzgruppe D was southern Ukraine, and and on into the into, into Russia. So the SS officer who was in charge of Einsatzgruppe A was a fellow by the name of uh, SS officer Franz Walter Stahlhacker, and he arrived in Kovna on the morning of June 25th, and he met with the Lithuanian security police and delivered a long anti-Semitic speech encouraging Lithuanians to solve the Jewish problem. According to Stalaker's report of 15, October 15th, local Lithuanians were not enthusiastic enough about the program, so he had to use Algridas Klimaitis and his men, which is a Lithuanian guy there who had his own like militia, Lithuanian nationalist. Um, he controlled a paramilitary unit of approximately 600 Lithuanians that was organized by the SS um, and so on. So, so they, there's a, a theory that the Nazis simply instigated it and pushed it. It probably is a combination of several factors. You can't always point to one thing. But what I want to do with our remaining time is try to understand how one becomes a perpetrator. The Nazis, on one hand, you say, okay, they had lived under a Nazi government since 1933. There was a Nazi ideology. There was Hitler's Mein Kampf. The Nazis ran the school system. 
There's this systematic ideology of how humanity is divided into races, the Nazi racial theory. Jews are subhuman. They don't even belong to the human race. They're detrimental to the future of the Aryan master race. And we have to defend ourselves against the Jewish threat. And the, the, not, the German people buy into this ideology Lock, stock, and barrel voluntarily, by the way. They, 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 they enjoy it, they love it, they welcome it. It's not like they were, it was forced upon them. That's for another time, though, to discuss Nazi uh, racial ideology and the complicity of the German people um, in that development. But we also have another type of perpetrator, the local. The local perpetrator who had not been under Nazi ideology for all these years, had not... Uh, um, had gone through the Nazi racial theory, and yet they were active collaborators, and very often the ones who initiated programs, and programs in a very, very sadistic and cruel way, such as the Lytukis Garage Massacre. And many of them, even if they were um, not perpetrators, they were bystanders. If we think about it, the majority of people in the years of World War II and the Holocaust, were bystanders. The majority of people who were involved at some level, there were victims, a few million victims, six million victims who were killed, and then another few million victims who survived. There were a few more million perpetrators, I don't know, a few tens of millions, let's say, of perpetrators, active perpetrators, less active perpetrators, but then there were hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of bystanders. And bystanders could be someone in the crowd around the Lytukis garage massacre. It could be, bystander could also be an editorial board of a newspaper in England or the United States who decides whether to publish uh, um, about the Nazi atrocities when they hear about it in 1942-43. That could also be a form of bystander. Or it could be the State Department officials who suppress that information also. Um, so there's all types of bystanders. Now, uh, probably the greatest Holocaust researcher alive today in the world, Yehuda Bauer, still alive, is in his 90s, still doing Holocaust research. I had the privilege of hearing him lecture several times at Yad Vashem. So he, he, uh, he has a very wise saying. He says, I, came, I come from the people who have brought the Ten Commandments into the world. And therefore, I feel like I have the liberty to add three more commandments. <laughs> I don't know about Baltoisif, you know. So, three more commandments. He says, Thou shalt never be a victim, thou shalt never be a perpetrator, and more than anything else, thou shalt never be a bystander. He said, if we have to take any one lesson out of the Holocaust, we should actually focus on the bystanders. Um, that's the one who get the least focused, by the way. We usually focus on the victims, a little bit on the perpetrators, and we almost completely ignore the bystanders, when really we should be focusing much more. So we, um, we uh, want to talk a little bit of, uh, about perpetrators and bystanders in a very abstract and general sense. Briefly discuss the topic. And I go back to saying what I started off with. I'm, I'm questioning the last few weeks if we've done a good job as Holocaust educators by, by primarily focusing on victims and neglecting the story of perpetrators. In the years following the Holocaust, the scientific community, the United States, in Germany, and in other countries, tried to understand how was it humanly possible? That was the way they very often phrased the question. 
How is it humanly possible? How could it be that human beings went ahead and perpetrated such a cruelty, especially with such a sadism, and very often in so many cases, such as the Holocaust? By the way, again, if you're following the news and social media especially, which I don't recommend anyone do, but if you do, very often you'll see people with a very, and it's a, and it comes from a good place. It's this emotional anger and, and, and horror at what we're seeing. And very often you'll see people use a phrase, and it really bothers me when I see it. They mean it in a good way. These people are monsters. These people are, are animals. These people are not even human. Have any of you seen that on social media the last couple of weeks? I think that's the worst thing to ever do. You know what? They are humans. They're not animals. They're not monsters. They're not non-humans. They're human beings who chose to go ahead and perpetrate a massacre. By saying, oh, they're monsters, you know what we're really doing? What we're saying is human beings are incapable of doing this. I cannot, I as a human being, cannot confront the reality that another human being is capable of doing this. First and foremost, because that means that I'm also capable of doing it, because I'm also a human being. But even in a broader sense, it's scary, because human beings are capable of it. So we say, no, 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 human beings can't do this. There are certain types of people who, they're not really human, they're monsters, they're, they're not human, they're animals. Even animals wouldn't do it. Sometimes you even see that guy on Twitter, right? Even animals wouldn't do it, right? So, so, so the point is that these people are human beings. And very often social psychologists and historians try to figure out why. How is it possible? One of the first experiments was very, very famous, and I'm, I'm sure all of you are familiar with it, was the Stanley Milgram experiment in 1961 in Yale University. And does anyone know why Milgram? Everyone knows the Milgram experiment. Any psychology major in college studies it and watches it and everything, Right? And you have to study it and watch it because it's illegal to do that experiment again. Um, but, but, uh, but how many people know that the reason Milgram, he was a psychologist, the reason Milgram did that experiment is because he was watching the Eichmann trial on the news. It was 1961. And during the Eichmann trial, with the whole international press televising it and talking about it and survivors are opening up for the first time. This is the first time in 16 years since the Holocaust took place that people are actually talking about their experiences and the Holocaust is on the front burner of everyone's consciousness. So Milgram is, oh my goodness, look at this Eichmann. And he's denying responsibility, I was only following orders. And, and look at this, look at the Holocaust. How could people go ahead and do it? And his question was, was what Eichmann saying at the trial, I was only following orders, was that true? And he decided to go find out. And that's the Milgram experiment, to see how authority affects human behavior. And all of you, are, I'm assuming, are familiar with the experiments. We don't have to go into the details. So he proved that it was, right? They all gave the electric shock, ultimately, to, to, the, to the actors doing the uh, spelling mistakes and the reading mistakes. The reading mistakes. And, uh, and over 90%, I think, gave what they thought was the was an electric, a fatal electric shock to to the actor, and with all the sound effects and everything, and they were able to carry that out. Why? Because Milgram stood there in a white lab coat, and he's a professor at Yale with a doctorate, and he says, "You're hired," 
and this is what you're doing, and this is what you're supposed to do. And, and you see some of them, if you watch the footage of it, they say, I can't be responsible for this person's murder. And he said, no, 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 I'm responsible for it. <laughs> and then they go ahead and do it. <laughs> so what they thought was, obviously it wasn't, they weren't, they weren't, no one was dying. But, but, but that, was, that was, the, well, was one of the earliest experiments. And based on Milgram, there were several subsequent experiments. Just a few years after Milgram did that in Yale, in 1967, in Palo Alto, California, there was the WAVE experiment, which I'm sure also you're all familiar with. And Ron Jones, the high school teacher in Palo Alto, who's still alive, you can always ask him about it if you didn't watch the movie or read the book, and he, he, he does this experiment because he's asked by his students in this public school in Palo Alto, they say, they're learning the Holocaust. It's 1967, it's already part of the history curriculum. So they're learning about World War II and the Holocaust, non-Jewish school, everything, right? And, and uh, Palo Alto, this is before the, the high-tech uh, Silicon Valley, there's no Jews living there. So the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, he, he, uh, someone asks, how could it be? How could people become perpetrators like that? How is it humanly possible? And he didn't know the answer. So he went to, the, he, he describes it, he went to the school library and he bumped into the Milgram experiment. And he read uh, Eric Hoffer's uh, uh, um, uh, the thoughts on the, uh, on the nature of mass movements, which is, talks about mass movements in general. Social philosopher. And, and all things, all kind of things like that. And then he decided to do the experiment, which I get, I'm assuming also you're all familiar with, the wave, which was also so successful that he lost control of the experiment. And it got out of control. It, 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 people became too involved in the wave. That was another experiment about social cohesion and authority and meaning and symbolism and, 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 and group identity and social conformity. And excluding those who can't conform. And that's followed with other experiments by other psychologists. I'm going to get to historians too, because we're more interested in historians than psychologists. But the last one is possibly the most important one. The last psychologist experiment. 1971 in Stanford University. Also a famous experiment. Philip Zimbardo. The prison experiment. The Stanford Prison Experiment. He's also still alive, by the way. He's in his 90s. And he still talks about it. And he still holds by the findings, even though they're very controversial findings and others disagree with it. Um, but at least we can raise the topic. Philip Zimbardo, he carries out famous prison experiment with, with uh, volunteers uh, from the Stanford area, from the same area as, as Palo Alto. And in... Uh, and in, in, this is in the summer of 1971, and it was supposed to be a two-week experiment. They wanted to simulate prison conditions, that half of the, the, the group is acting out as wardens, and half of them are acting as prisoners. Excuse me. And, and uh, he wanted to see, what he wanted to test was, see if I get the terminology right, situational attribution. If we can say that the, the power of the environment, the sviva, the environment that I have, how much does that affect my behavior? And the environment of a prison, as wardens and prisoners, does that affect my behavior? Now, the, the experiment didn't last two weeks. 
On the fifth day, outside observers came in to see how the experiment was going. And they noticed how cruel the wardens had become, how sadistic they had become to the prisoners. And one of the, psychologists, the Stanford psychologists who came to visit said to, to, to Zimbardo, to himself, the one running the experiment, he said, I don't recognize you. Like what you've become. This is the fifth day of the experiment. So on the sixth day, he called it off. He terminated it early, and they published several papers afterwards, and it became very controversial, the findings, and of course it's illegal to do the experiment again, so they can't even just test it to replicate the findings. Um, but that became a very, a very interesting story. And even recently, in 2003, uh, with the invasion of Iraq, there was a prison, Abu, Abu Ghraib, Ghraib? Grab. Grab. So, so there was tortures of, of prisoners there and all kinds of things. It was in the news. And Philip Zimbardo said, hey, we have a natural experiment that proved the findings that I simulated in Stanford University 22 years ago. Because these U.S. Army officers are not sadistic people. But the environment generated, the situational attribution generated by that Abu Ghraib prison, uh, made them into sadists. And he testified as an expert witness for the defense in the trial of those officers. Okay? Um, so let's get to a historian. In our last few minutes, we brought out all the psychological things, and this way I can even pretend I know some psychology, which I don't. Um, but he, he, one of the most prominent Holocaust historians in the world University of North Carolina, Christopher Browning. And he's written many, many important works on the Holocaust. He still is. He's still doing more Holocaust research. And one of his uh, landmark books, which completely transformed the world of understanding perpetrators, was a book that I highly recommend called Ordinary Men. And Ordinary Men discusses a... Uh, um, uh, um, it was a uh, p- police officers from the order police from Hamburg, Germany, and these police officers needed to boost up the Einsatzgruppen and troops in the east. There wasn't enough manpower, so they were taken from their jobs in Hamburg, and they were brought to the east, to the front, to the Nazi-occupied lands of the Soviet Union, and they had and they and they were and they participated in. In murder, in, in rounding up Jews in these towns, marching them to the outskirts, to the forest, having them dig their own graves, and then machine gunning them to death in these graves. So they, 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 they did this out. Now they were not SS, they were not trained to be SS, they were police officers in Hamburg. And not only that, they were all given a choice. They say, if anyone is uncomfortable, not you know, they don't want to do this, it's uncomfortable, it's a lot of blood, a lot of killing, um, so you don't have to do it. You can, and nothing's going to happen. There's like myth out there that any, anyone who refused to kill Jews would have, would have been punished, and therefore SS and other people were forced into doing it. That, that's a myth. There is not one shred of evidence that anyone was ever punished or killed or imprisoned because they refused to kill Jews. 
Um, so, and here they're actually given a choice. The senior officer of this police battalion uh, 101, it was police battalion 101 of the order police in Hamburg, that's their name. They were ordinary men, and they were given the choice of whether to participate in this or not. And a couple of them actually opted out, and most of them didn't. The overwhelming majority didn't. And in that book, he goes ahead and profiles these people, and it's all from trial transcripts and interviews, and it was a really, really intensive research. And his findings talk about things like not only Nazi ideology, not only anti-Semitism. Now think about it. We like to blame things on Nazi ideology and anti-Semitism. First of all, if it's anti-Semitism, then that's great, because then it's like this big, huge picture of Jewish history, and we can explain it. And especially for religious Jews, we give all these, you know, Chazal interpretations to it, and and give it, a, which is great. It's wonderful, and, and and it's true also. Unfortunately, it was anti-Semitism plays a huge role in this story. No one's denying that. We also like to talk about Nazi ideology and racial theory, but here he talks about social conformity, feeling part of the group, advanced social advancement and prestige within the group, not wanting to be different within the group. And that's a much more scary thing to discuss. Because if it's anti-Semitism or Nazi racial ideology, so then if it's absent anti-Semitism, it's either where there is no anti-Semitism, or maybe when it's not even Jews, maybe it's another persecuted minority, there is no anti-Semitism, or when there's no Nazi racial ideology. So absent those things, human beings are incapable of doing any crime like that. But if it has to do with inherent human traits, such as social conformity, and that's much scarier to confront. Because that means that it's part of the human condition. And that being a perpetrator is something that a human being is capable of doing. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and, uh, and that's much scarier. And his findings added a lot to, to the picture as well. There's more to talk about uh, of perpetrators and also bystanders, which we haven't gotten to touch on yet as, as well. But I think we'll have to save that for another time. So... We'll end with that. Thank you.